Good morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the book of Colossians and go to Colossians chapter 3. And as you turn there, uh, I want to begin with a question. What does it mean for a church to be Christ-centered? How does a church become a Christ-centered church? Now, most of you know that everything in the Christian life revolves around Jesus Christ. Uh, The Christian life is all about Christ. It's about knowing Christ. It's about loving Christ. It's about serving Christ and obeying Christ. Uh, Our lives are to be all about the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about when we gather as a church? How do we make sure that our church is Christ-centered? You see, the church is designed by God to be Christ-centered. It is to be built on the word of Christ. It is to pursue the glory of Christ. And its goal is the preaching of the gospel of Christ. So is our church Christ-centered? Does the gospel saturate everything we do as a church? Well, this is what I want us to think about as we look at our text today from Colossians 3, verses 9 through 17. So go to Colossians 3, verses 9 through 17, as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. I'm going to read from Colossians 3, starting in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we study a passage today that is mostly practical, may we not forget that the basis of everything we do is what you have first done for us. And Lord, we obey because of the new life we have in Christ. So God, by your spirit, may you empower us today illuminate our minds, and help us to see the glory of Jesus in this very passage. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, I want to remind you that chapter 3 is a turning point in the book of Colossians, as Paul begins to spell out the implications of the gospel. And so from chapter 3 to the end of the book, what we have are are Paul's instructions about how to live a Christ-centered life. So, for example, later in chapter 3, he talks about how Christians are to relate to their families. 
Uh, he also talks about how Christians are to relate to their work. But before he does that, uh, he first talks about how Christians are to relate to others in the church. In other words, how do we live a Christ-centered life as members of a church? And so the title of today's sermon is simply, A Christ-Centered Life, Part 2, The Christ-Centered Church. A Christ-Centered Life, Part 2, The Christ-Centered Church. And I think we can divide up our passage into three parts. So first, the traits of a Christ-centered church. Second, the task of a Christ-centered church. And then third, the tools of a Christ-centered church. So the traits, the task, and the tools of a Christ-centered church. Point number one, the traits of a Christ-centered church. What are some of the traits or the characteristics of a Christ-centered church? Well, Paul gives us two. Uh, The first is integrity, and the second is unity. So the first is integrity, and the second is unity. First, a Christ-centered church is marked by integrity. Look at verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another. Right? Do not lie to one another. Now, the phrase one another uh, refers to other believers in your Christian community. Uh, It presupposes a community of believers who have covenanted together as a church. Uh, This verse reminds us of what Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, when he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, why is it important to, to speak the truth with our neighbor? Well, he says, for you are members of one another. You are members one of another. So you see, when it comes to the body of Christ, integrity is especially important. Now, Paul is not saying that, you know, it's okay to lie to unbelievers, right? Or that it's okay to to lie to your boss at work. That is not what Paul is saying at all. Uh, Proverbs 6 reminds us that the Lord hates a lying tongue. So you see, Paul is not saying that it's okay to lie to people just because they are outside of the church. But what he is saying is that truth is essential for Christian community. You see, one of the causes of the breakdown of community is the breakdown of truth. That's the case with any part of society. Because the the consequence of the breakdown of truth is the breakdown of trust. Friends, lying destroys our trust for one another. And true community must be built on trust. You know, I I can't imagine a a greater obstacle to to Christian community than the lack of integrity. I really can't. Um, So my wife and I saw a movie uh, based on the true story of a man named Frank Abagnale Jr. Now, uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. was a guy who lied, and he pretended to be a doctor, a lawyer, and even an airline pilot. We see the thing about Frank Abagnale Jr. and if you if you watch the movie closely or if you if you read the autobiography that that inspired the movie the thing about him was that the more he lied the more alienated he was from the people he loved the most. Now this is also true for the church. Right we we can't be vulnerable with one another if all we do is lie to each other. You just can't build community with a bunch of people who constantly lie. The more we lie, the more alienated we will be from the people we love the most. Now, now, what do Christians lie about? Right? Because I don't think any of you are, are pretending to be airline pilots. Uh, 
what do Christians lie about? Well, well, sometimes I think we lie to avoid things. Sometimes we lie to avoid people, uh, to avoid being around certain people, people who might rub us the wrong way. Sometimes we lie to avoid responsibility, right? So, for example, it, when someone says, hey, can you help me with something? Or, or can you serve this week? And you say, no, I am busy this week, except you're not. Sometimes we lie, I think, to avoid dealing with sin, right? So, for example, if someone were to ask you, uh, how are you doing spiritually? Or how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? And you say, I'm doing great, except you're not. Or what about when your pastor or your discipler asks you, are you struggling with any sins? Are you struggling with any besetting sins? And you say, nope, I am not struggling at all. But you are. You're lying. Sometimes I think we lie to offer a positive impression of ourselves to others. Friends, have you ever posted something on social media to to sort of mislead others about how you're really doing? You see, whenever we're confronted with an inconvenient truth, we are tempted to lie. And when this inconvenient truth is either going to cost you time, money, or your reputation, you will concoct a lie in order to serve your own interests. But you see, when you do that, right? when you lie to serve your own interests, rather than help you, in the long run, it'll hurt you because it'll drive you apart from others. That's what lying does. Friends, telling the truth is the only way to, to bring people together rather than drive people apart. Now, thankfully, uh, Paul gives us the, the theological engine or the theological thrust which drives this command. He says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So in other words, don't lie to one another because you have put off the old self. Now, what in the world is the old self? What does Paul mean by that? Well, the old self is simply just who you were before you were saved. It refers to your old sinful nature. But you see, when you became a Christian, your old self died. And God gave you a new identity in Christ. He's made you into a new creation with, with new affections for the things of Christ. And this new self is now being renewed after the image of its creator. Right? The language here is similar to, to what Paul says in Romans 12. Right? When he says, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Right? That's what it means to be renewed in knowledge. And it also reminds us of, of Romans 8 when he says that the goal of this transformation is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So you see, if you're a Christian, the old you is gone and the new you is being renewed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theological engine behind this command. And it's the theological engine behind every command of the Bible. Christians are to live out what God has already done in Christ. That's how the Christian life works. So in light of that, in light of that, stop lying to one another. Stop saying that you're okay when you're not okay, right? Be, be real with your struggles and be vulnerable when you're weak. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Stop lying to one another and stop lying about one another. Be willing to tell the truth even when you're tempted to lie. 
So that's the first trait of a Christ-centered church. The Christ-centered church is marked by integrity. Now, the second trait of a Christ-centered church is unity. So one of the marks of a Christ-centered church is Christ-exalting unity. Uh, In verse 11, Paul tells us that one of the implications of our new life is that there should be no division in the church. Take a look at verse 11. He says, here. Now, now let's stop right there. When he says here, he means here in the church, right? Here among those who are being renewed in the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. So you see, what he's saying is that there should be no division, whether it's ethnic or social or cultural, from amongst God's people. You know, Paul says something similar in Galatians 3.28. And I think most of you are familiar with Galatians 3.28, which says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I think you're also familiar with, with most of these distinctions and what they mean, right? So, so Greek and Jew are ethnic distinctions. Uh, circumcised and uncircumcised are, are religious distinctions having to do with religious practices. And of course, slave and free, as it was in the first century, was a social distinction. Now, now the term barbarian and Scythian sort of stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, barbarian was a term that Greeks used for non-Greeks uh, because not all Gentiles were Greeks. Right? So there were non-Greeks whom the Greeks wanted to be separate from. And so the term barbarian was used to contrast the Greeks who were considered refined and more civilized from the barbarians who were considered uncivilized. So, so this is really like, like a cultural distinction. Sort of like the way we today uh, contrast the uncivilized Yankee fans from the much more civilized Met fans. <laughs> Amen. And then Scythian refers to people who, who lived on the north side of the Black Sea, right? And these people were, were the epitome of savagery. They were considered brutal and unrefined and even more barbaric than the barbarians. So, so look at what Paul's doing, right? What, what he's doing here is, is what he does here is he, he lists all the ways people assign value to a people group, values that are based on worldly identities, And he points out that God has created a new society. He's created a a new humanity with Christ as its head. And in this new society, there is to be no division from amongst God's people. Now, Paul is not saying that distinctions disappear altogether when you become a Christian, right? You don't lose your background or your culture when you become a Christian. I don't expect Yankee fans to become civilized when they get saved. Uh, There will always be distinctions. But the point is this. Here's the point. These distinctions ultimately don't matter. And the reason they don't matter is because Christ is all and in all. Now, the term Christ is all just simply means Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. And since he is supreme and sufficient, he's all that matters. He's all that we need and he's all that matters. So I want you to follow Paul's logic, right? Having Christ is the most important thing in the world. This is what Paul's saying. And if having Christ is the most important thing in the world, then what we have in common is the most important thing in the world. 
That's why these distinctions ultimately don't matter. They don't matter because Christ is all and in all. Commentator F.F. Bruce makes the point that in the early church, a slaves as much as free persons were brothers and sisters in Christ. So much so that a slave might be a pastor of a church by virtue of his spiritual gifting, while free people would humbly and gratefully submit to his direction. In other words, the gospel makes worldly distinctions irrelevant. So this means that when you look at someone with contempt or disdain because they're somehow different from you, maybe they they talk differently or they look different, you're denying the sufficiency of Christ. You're denying the fact that Christ is all and in all. But friends, when we love one another, despite our distinctions, we show the world that Christ is enough, that Christ is sufficient. This is the Christ-exalting unity that should characterize a Christ-centered church. Well, this brings us to point number two. Uh, Point number two, the task of a Christ-centered church. What are some of the the tasks or the responsibilities of a Christ-centered church? Well, well, the task of a Christ-centered church can be summed up by one single word. And, And that one single word is love. Look at verse 14. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Friends, this is the primary task of the church, to love one another, right? This is what Jesus said. This is how all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, what does this love look like? Well, our love for one another expresses itself in certain virtues. So go back two verses to verse 12. In verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, once again, notice that Paul talks about putting on, right? Do you see that? He says put on, or put on compassion, or put on love, or put on kindness. Now, now back in verse 10, we said that the phrase put on refers to our identity, right? A put on the new self, that refers to your identity. But here in verse 12, he uses the imagery of, of putting on as in putting on new clothes, And I think there's a relationship between these two phrases, right? Uh, Put on the new self and put on new clothes. So it's it's sort of like what they say in the fashion world. Not that I would know, but but, but in the fashion world, uh, what they say is that identity and clothing go together. Right? Your your clothing often reflects your identity. So, for example, uh, New Yorkers tend to wear dark colors. Right? So just, just take a look around this room. With some exceptions, a few exceptions, right? New Yorkers, you'll see, it's true, New Yorkers tend to wear dark colors. People from the South tend to wear bright colors, right? You sort of know when the interns are in town, right? Because when they come into town, you'll see them wearing clothes that have brighter colors. So your clothing, in general, matches your identity. Likewise, likewise, as a Christian, you must put on the new virtues that reflect your identity in Christ. In other words, Paul is telling you to put on your new clothes. 
And so what he does is he gives us five articles of clothing to put on. He gives us five virtues that we must put on. First, he says, put on compassionate hearts. Those who have put on the new self must put on compassionate hearts. They must put on a concern for God's people. They must have a a steep sensitivity for the needs of others. Put on compassionate hearts. A second, they must put on kindness. They must put on a graciousness, a, a gentleness, and or an attitude that seeks someone else's good. That's what it means to put on kindness, to seek someone else's good. And then put on humility. In other words, put on an attitude that doesn't make much of yourself. Right? Paul says in Romans 12, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Put on humility. And then put on meekness. Put on meekness or, or a self-controlled gentleness. That's what meekness is, a self-controlled gentleness. And then lastly, patience. Put on patience, which implies a, a slowness to anger. Put on a slowness to anger. And these virtues then express themselves in two behaviors, in bearing with one another and then forgiving each other. Right? So bearing with one another and then forgiving each other. Now, what does it mean to bear with one another? Well, to bear with one another simply means to put up with one another. This involves putting up with people who you might consider a little bit annoying. Right? It's putting up with the annoying person in your accountability group. Or maybe the person on your ministry team who always seems to be late. It refers to situations where sin has not taken place, but you're dealing with someone who's just difficult to love. Someone who just rubs you the wrong way. The Bible tells us to bear with them, to love them by putting up with their idiosyncrasies. But friends, if sin has taken place, if one has a complaint against another, and that person repents of it, then you must forgive each other. So bear with one another and forgive each other. Well, okay, so let's summarize this, right? The task of a Christ-centered church is love, which expresses itself in five virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then these virtues express themselves in two behaviors, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Now, before we move on, I just want to point out two basic principles from verses 12 through 14. Uh, The first principle that we keep coming back to in, in, in this letter is what we do is always rooted in who we are. Uh, when it comes to Christian obedience, what we do is always rooted in who we are. Did you notice that, that each time Paul gives us a command, he, he reminds us of who we are. He, he reminds us here in verse 12 that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Right, so, so he first reminds of, us, us of our election in Christ, that God has chosen us before the foundations of the world. We are God's chosen ones. Uh, he also reminds us that we are holy, right? And not just that we are becoming holy, which, which is also true, but that we are already holy because we are set apart by God for his purposes. And then he reminds us that we are his beloved. Because of Christ, we are objects of God's affections. And, and, and so the fact that we are chosen, holy, and beloved then, then empowers us to obey these commands. What we do is rooted in who we are. But I also want you to see this on another level. What we do is also rooted in what Christ has done. You see, because Christ has forgiven us, 
we also ought to forgive others. Look, look, at what, look at what Paul says. He says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So you see, our forgiveness of others is rooted in the Lord's forgiveness of us. Friends, if you're here today and you are not a Christian and you have not experienced the forgiveness of God, then you do not have the resources to forgive others. Uh, because God commands us to offer the same magnitude of forgiveness to others as he himself offers to us. And so here's the question. Do you know God's forgiveness? Have you experienced God's forgiveness? Here's the thing. Experiencing God's forgiveness starts with recognizing that you need forgiveness. It, it begins with recognizing that you are a sinner and that you deserve God's wrath. And, and then by God's grace, you believe that Jesus took your sins to the cross. Right, the Bible says that, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he rose from the dead so that you could have a right standing before God. This is even greater than forgiveness. You have a right standing before God. So friends, if you're here today, you're not a Christian. If you would repent of your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would trust in Christ's death on your behalf, then you too can experience God's forgiveness. And then and only then can you truly forgive others. This brings us to point number three. <clears throat> point number three, the tools of a Christ-centered church. The tools of a Christ-centered church. The first tool is the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, when Paul talks about the peace of Christ, he's not talking about subjective peace. You know, the peace that, that we need when we're anxious. What he's talking about is objective peace. The peace that comes about because of Christ's death on the cross. Uh, his death which reconciles us to God. This is the peace that should rule our hearts. And this is the peace that should characterize our lives. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But you see, not just individually, but corporately. Right? Not, not, not just individually between you and God, but, but corporately between all of you. Notice this. Notice that Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Not heart, but hearts, plural. Now, I suppose he could mean, you know, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, your heart, your heart, in each and every one of your hearts. But I don't think that's what he means. There are a few reasons why I think he means something slightly different. At first, he connects the, the peace of Christ in verse 15 with the fact that you are called to one body. Look at the second half of verse 15. He says, to which indeed you were called to one body, signifying that this peace has something to do with preserving unity in the body of Christ. And then look at that word rule. Look at that word rule. Uh, the word rule here means to umpire between two different parties. So in other words, Paul is not talking about the peace that we feel as individuals. He's talking about peace between members of the body of Christ. 
In other words, let the peace of Christ be the umpire between each and every one of your hearts, so that if you are tempted to be at war with one another, this peace would rule. It would be the arbiter between each and every one of you. Friends, that's what Christ offers. Not just peace between us and God, as as great as that is, but peace between the members of the body of Christ. So that's the first tool of a Christ-centered church. The peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The second tool is the word of Christ. The second tool is the word of Christ. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, the word of Christ is nothing less than the gospel, right? The word of Christ could also be the word about Christ or the the message about Christ. So this is just the gospel, uh, the gospel, which is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel must dwell in us richly, which means that it must take up permanent residence among us, which is to say that the gospel shapes everything we do as a church. Right, The gospel should rule and guide and direct everything we do, especially when we gather for worship. This means that our worship services should always have the main elements of New Testament worship. Well, Okay, so, so what do we do when we gather for worship? Well, when we gather, we sing God's word, we read God's word, we pray in a way that's consistent with God's word, and we preach God's word. Right, So sing the word, read the word, pray the word, and preach the word. That's what a Christ-centered worship service should look like. But you see, not only should the gospel guide our worship service, but it should also guide our conversations. Let me ask you, what do we talk about when we get together? Does the word of Christ dwell in us so richly that we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom? You see, teaching and admonishing is not just something pastors do. It's something that we all should do. So does the word of Christ so saturate your lives that you can't help but talk about Christ in your speech? So what do we talk about when we get together, right? So later when we get bagels and donuts, what will you talk about? You know, uh, I grew up during a time when the most popular show on television was Seinfeld. Uh, Some of you remember watching hours and hours of Seinfeld reruns. But I wonder if you still remember how the characters on that show would talk about nothing. I mean, that's what Seinfeld was, right? It was a show about nothing. And so for many years, we were captivated by the trivial banter of Jerry, George, Kramer, and Elaine as they majored on the mundane, as they talked about nothing. But what about our church? Are we the Seinfeld church? When we get together, do we talk about nothing? Do we talk about the mundane and the trivial things of this world? Or does the word of Christ dwell in us so richly and so abundantly that it overflows in all of our conversations? So that, so that we naturally uh, teach one another and we naturally admonish one another with all wisdom. That's what a Christ-centered church should look like. It's a church that naturally breathes in God's word and then naturally breathes out God's word to bless others. Friends, do you know how a church, how to tell if a church is a good church? You listen to their people talk. 
right? You, you, you eavesdrop. Not in a creepy way, but you, but you eavesdrop on their conversation. And friends, after many years of eavesdropping, I got to tell you, this is a good church. And it will continue to be a good church as long as you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you know how else you can tell if a church is a good church? When you listen to their people sing. Listen to what Paul says. He says, one of the ways we teach and admonish is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So you see, one way you teach and admonish is through congregational singing. Now, there's so much we could say about verse 16. Uh, I think you can preach an entire sermon on Colossians 3, verse 16. Uh, the phrase psalms and hymns and spiritual songs could simply mean that there, there are three different categories of songs. Right? So, for example, psalms might refer to the Old Testament psalms. And hymns might refer to simply songs of praise that were written during the early church. And then spiritual songs might refer to spontaneous songs that were sung spontaneously as prompted by the Holy Spirit. Or this could just be three ways to describe the same thing. Right? Three ways to describe songs that were sung to God. But regardless, it shows us the importance of congregational singing in the life of the church. Now, the second thing we learn is that there's a twofold purpose to congregational singing. So God gives us singing for two reasons. The first reason is to express thankfulness in our hearts to God. Right? Paul says that we are to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. But there's another purpose here. We also sing to instruct one another in the gospel. This is similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18 when he says we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Right? We are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So you see, singing is not about you. Right? It's primarily to express thankfulness to God and for the sake of edifying your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is, this is why you just can't sing any song you want during corporate worship. Uh, to let the word of Christ dwell in us means that we must explicitly sing the gospel. Our songs must make clear that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. This is why we can't sing what some people call 7-Eleven songs. Do, do you know what a 7-Eleven song is? It's when you sing the same seven words 11 times. And you know what I'm talking about. Just... Just turn on Christian radio. Brothers and sisters, let us sing rich, Christ-centered songs which make the gospel clear. So let me ask you, how are you singing? I'm not talking about like how the song leaders are, are picking their songs out. They're doing a, a great job. But how are you singing? Sometimes uh, I've heard people say, you know, the Lord cares about my heart when I sing. The Lord only cares about my heart and then that person will say, you know, I'm singing in my heart. I'm doing a good job. And what they do is they, they whisper sing, right? Right? You know who you are, right? You whisper sing. You just blend in. You whisper, you blend in with the background. But you see, singing is not about you. And it's not just between you and God. Singing is also for encouraging others in the gospel. So if you're here today and you are a whisperer, stop whispering. Sing your hearts out for the glory of God and for the edification of your brothers and sisters in Christ. The last tool, the third tool here, is the name of Christ. The name of Christ. 
So we have the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, now the name of the Lord Jesus just refers to the authority of Jesus, the will of Jesus, and the power of Jesus. The authority of Jesus, the will of Jesus, the power of Jesus. That's what it refers to. Uh, William Henderson says that to do everything in the name of Jesus, Jesus means that we have harmony with God's will. It means that we are to be subject to his authority and we are to be dependent on his power. To have harmony with his will, to be subject to his authority, and to be dependent on his power. So authority, will, and power. And so this is a tool for us because it gives us purpose and motivation for everything we do as a church. And then he, Paul closes this section by reminding us to give thanks to God. Right? The, the fact, in fact, he tells us to give thanks in verses 15, 16, and here in 17. Friends, we are to be a thankful people. We are to always have a, an attitude of gratitude. Thanksgiving is not just how we obey God, it is, but it's a tool to help us obey him in every area of our lives. So you can count that another tool, thankfulness. Okay, so let's close with some points of application, right? How can we apply this passage to our lives? Application number one is tell the truth. Application number one is to tell the truth. Friends, our culture has a truth crisis. So a few years ago, National Geographic wrote an article called Why We Lie, Our Complicated Relationship with the Truth. And it made the observation that human beings are just experts at lying, right? We lie frequently. We lie in many ways, and we lie for many different reasons. And the author comes to this conclusion. He came to the conclusion that the reason we lie is because it's part of our human nature. Surprise, surprise. And what he says is that we cannot, human beings cannot not lie. But you see, the Apostle Paul disagrees. He says, for a Christian, you have put off the old self with its practices, and our new self is being renewed after its creator. So Christians have been given the sufficient resources to tell the truth. Now, notice that I didn't just say stop lying, right? The application wasn't just stop lying. You see, the opposite of lying is not silence. It's telling the truth. A liar stops being a liar when he begins to tell the truth. So, so if you're guilty of lying, start by asking for forgiveness in areas where you have not been honest. Start by asking for forgiveness in areas where you have not been honest, and then tell the truth. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, from now on, I'm going to tell the truth. Right, right, from now on, I'm going to be honest. But God is calling you to go to people whom you have lied to and tell the truth. Right, if you think about what Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, lay aside falsehood, and speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, right? So there's two things happening here. There's sort of two sides of the same coin, right? Repent of lying and tell the truth. Now, of course, it's embarrassing to have to do that, but I think it's better than continuing in sin. So ask for forgiveness and tell the truth. Volunteer the truth, even if it hurts. And then going forth, develop a reputation for honest speech, let your yes be a yes and your no be a no and don't make promises you can't keep. 
So if you're a person who's been characterized by dishonesty, it's not enough to merely admit in your heart that you're a liar. You have to go to others and tell the truth. Application number two, cultivate unity in your relationships at church. Cultivate unity in your relationships at church. Ephesians 4.3 says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, I think it's a great thing that our church is diverse. I think it's a beautiful thing that, that, that there are so many different cultures represented in this church. But here's the thing. Being diverse is not an end in itself. Right? You, you can be diverse and still be unhealthy if there's no unity in the gospel. Friends, the goal of our church is not simply diversity. The goal of our church is Christ exalting unity in diversity. And this is a unity that will be a witness to the outside world. So cultivate unity in your relationships at church. One way I think you can cultivate unity is to resist the temptation to size people up. In other words, don't assume things about people. Right? Don't size people up based on their age, their ethnicity, their culture, their job, or even the church that they came from. Get to know them. See them with new eyes in light of who they are in Christ. Now, another way to cultivate unity is by taking responsibility to restore unity where there is disunity. Be responsible for restoring unity in areas where there is disunity. Friends, when you see a threat to unity amongst the brethren, do you step in to help? Or do you just sort of stay out of the way, right? It's none of my business. I'm not going to get involved. Unity is everyone's responsibility. So I really appreciated how a few months ago during the summer, uh, one person came up to me and told me that there were two people who were having conflict in the church. Uh, it was a situation that, that I had not known about at all. And that person really had nothing to gain by telling me, but just wanted to restore unity in the church. So I really appreciated that person who someone is someone who cares about unity. So friends, we all have to do our part. Right? We all have to do our part so that our church will always be a church where people say, here, right here at North Shore Baptist Church, there is not Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Application number three. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these virtues that Paul mentions in 12 through 14 such as compassion, kindness, and humility, uh, they're really virtues of Christ. Right? The Bible attributes these virtues to the character and nature of Jesus himself. And so bearing with one another and forgiving one another are also things that Christ has done for us. And so if we are to consistently exercise these virtues, we must put on Christ himself. We must live as Jesus lived. So let me ask you, does your life look like you have put on Jesus Christ? Uh, when you, before you came here today, did you rehearse any strategies about how you can be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient with others? Did, did you look for opportunities to do that? Well, guess what? The day isn't over, so you can still do that today. Look for opportunities to exercise these virtues even today after service. Ask yourself, how can I exercise the virtues of Christ today? Last application, application number four. Understand the gospel and be committed to teaching it to others. 
understand the gospel, and be committed to teaching it to others. Brothers and sisters, do you spend enough time in the word so that you can use it to instruct others? So that you can teach others and admonish others? You know, one of the things we tell people at Sunday school is it's not only do we want you to know this stuff, but we want you to teach it to others. Why we want you to, to teach it to someone you're discipling. A teacher to someone who is younger in the faith. A teacher to the children when you serve in preschool or children's church. A teach the gospel to those who are hurting when you counsel. Teach it to the unreached when you go on missions. So do you know and understand the gospel well enough? And are you committed to teaching it to others? Friends, the gospel is so important that God doesn't just want us to dabble in it, but it is to be the center of all that we do as a church. So to that end, may our church be a Christ-centered church. Let us pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would burn these words into our hearts, that by your grace we would be moved to do our part to make sure that our church is Christ-centered, both in our commitment to the truth, in our unity, and in our love. And God, may these commitments be evidenced by our actions, by the way we bear one another, and by the way we forgive each other, and the peace that is between us. Oh Lord, may your word ever so dwell in us richly. And may we do everything in the name of a most supreme and sufficient Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.